In Acts chapter 7 and verse 55, we see uh, how we are introduced to this man. Originally, his name is Saul, Saul of Tarsus. And uh, later in the Bible, he's referred to as Paul. He didn't change his name. The reason you have two different names is that Saul is the Hebrew version of his name and Paul is the Greek version of his name. So he's mentioned actually with two different names depending on who he's dealing with, who he's talking to at the time. If he's talking to Jewish people, he's gonna be referred to as Saul. If he's talking to others, Gentiles, he's gonna be referred to as Paul. So we're first introduced to Saul of Tarsus at the martyrdom of Stephen. We know that the New Testament church had just begun and the church leaders had chosen some people, to, some men to serve as deacons. There was a need, people were needing help, and there was no one there to kind of look out for them. So men were chosen, and one of them was Stephen. And Stephen was a man who was filled with the Holy Spirit. And he was very bold in his preaching and the things that he said. And unfortunately, the things that he said so annoyed the, the Jews that they wanted to take his life, and indeed they did. He was the first martyr of the church, outside of Jesus, of course. But it says in verse 55, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven, saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And the Jews were so incensed by this comment. Verse 57, at this they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses, those who came and accused Stephen of doing, uh, falsely accused him rather, of doing things that were ungodly, these witnesses, false witnesses, laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. So that's how we're first introduced to this man. You know, I thought for many years that he may have just been a young guy, and uh, these witnesses told him to watch their coats, and they laid their coats at his feet. But the more I studied, I came to see that this laying the coats at Saul's feet implies that he was actually in charge of this execution. He was a Pharisee and had been a Pharisee for quite some time. And it seems that he was actually organizing this martyrdom. He was there not only giving his approval to it, but he was the one under whose authority this happened. So he was a leading Jew of his time, a leading Pharisee. We'll look at uh, chapter eight, because right after this happened, there starts a whole persecution of the church, starting with this uh, martyrdom of Stephen. It says in verse one of chapter eight, and Saul was there giving approval to Stephen's death. On that day, so it didn't start later, on that same day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him, but Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. 
So he wasn't just a young man at this time. He was an influential Pharisee who had a lot of zeal for God. And he jumped right in there and did what he felt God wanted him to do, to persecute this new sect, this new uh, group of people who were teaching things contrary to the Old Testament teaching, pointing people to Jesus Christ, and he thought, well, this is heresy. So Paul had a lot of zeal. That's what I want to talk about today. The Apostle Paul and his zeal. What is zeal? Zeal is a great energy and enthusiasm in pursuit of a particular cause or objective. So to be zealous, to have a lot of zeal, that means you have great energy or enthusiasm for something. And Paul's objective was to stamp out what he felt were heresies and heretics. And he looked at the Christians as heretics. Now, he didn't just imprison Christians. It says in Galatians 1, and I'll turn back to Acts in just a moment, but let's look at Galatians chapter 1, beginning in verse 13. Throughout his writings, he recounts his beginnings, how he started. And notice what he says here in Galatians 1, verse 13. He says, For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many Jews of my own age and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. So he not only imprisoned them, but he actually executed Christians. He took his personal commission from the Old Testament. This wasn't just his thoughts, but he felt that God wanted him to wipe out any false religions, and Christianity was considered by the Jews to be a false religion. The uh, instruction that he would have thought of was found back in Deuteronomy chapter 13 and verse 6. Notice what God told Israel back in Old Testament times, Deuteronomy 13, beginning in verse 6. So Paul knew these scriptures, and this is what God said back here. If, you, if your very own brother or your son or daughter or the wife you love or your closest friend secret, secretly entices you, saying, let us go and worship other gods, gods that neither you nor your fathers have known, gods of the peoples around you, whether near or far, from one end of the land to the other, do not yield to him or listen to him. Show him no pity, do not spare him or shield him. You must certainly put him to death. And your hand must be the first in putting him to death. And then the hands of all the other people stone him to death because he tried to turn you away from the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. So Paul knew this Old Testament passage and others like it. And he, as a steadfast Jew, a Pharisee, uh, one of the, of the learned Jews, a teacher of the law, as he saw Christians now pointing people to Jesus Christ rather than to the Torah, he felt it was his duty to wipe this out. 
So that's why he persecuted the church. He had a personal commission. Jews considered Christians to be worshipers of a false god, this Jesus Christ of Nazareth. So Paul, Saul at the time, was a man of great zeal, zeal for God, but it was now misguided. And God had to do something. He saw this zeal that Paul had for God, but he had to put it in the right direction. So God intervenes in Saul's life to turn him around completely. A 180 degree turn. And we read about this in Acts chapter 9. Let's turn there now. You know, one of the most remarkable callings, if you will, of any person. But this is what God deemed necessary to turn this very zealous man around. It says in Acts 9 verse 1, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, that's what they called Christianity, the Jews called it a way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. And as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So he was struck blind by God. This is what God had to do to get the attention of this very zealous man who was so dedicating and wiping out Christianity. Dedicated. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision. Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told Ananias, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. So then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the, on the road as you were coming here has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized and after taking some food, he regained his strength. So imagine what God had to do to turn this man around, a powerful miracle. He changed his life in an instant, and Paul obediently submitted to God's will. He was baptized, and he now has become a Christian. 
It goes on to say, Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. So he was in one day trying to wipe out this Christianity, and now all of a sudden he is so quickly converted that he's preaching Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? Jesus. And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. And after many days had gone by, the Jews conspired to kill Saul. They look at him now as a traitor. You know, he was doing the right thing by wiping out Christianity. Now he's preaching Christianity. But Saul learned of their plan. Day and night they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. And when he had come to, to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Grecian Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the brothers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. It was strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It grew in numbers, living in the fear of the Lord. I don't know, I've talked to a lot of people who were converted or called to you know, salvation through Jesus Christ. I've never heard of a story like that before. But God knew that this man was very zealous for him. He just need, needed to have that zeal redirected in the right direction. And that's exactly what God did. So zeal is a good thing to have. Don't forget, zeal means a great energy or enthusiasm for something. And God has called us to be zealous for God, to be zealous for Jesus Christ, to share what we understand about God and about Jesus Christ with others, to live a life with great zeal, you know, according to what we understand God's will for us is. You know, the great commandment to love God with all of our heart, our, our, all of our mind, all of our soul, all of our strength, to love our neighbor as ourself. God has called us to live that kind of life with great zeal, with great energy. That's what we've been called to do. So Paul learned a lesson about zeal. You can have zeal, you can have excitement, you can have energy, but that zeal can be misdirected. I want to turn now to Romans chapter 10. I want to talk a little bit about my Christian walk, and I know you share some of the things that I've experienced. This is what Paul said in Romans 10, beginning in verse 1. Brothers and sisters, 
My heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they, the Jews, are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. So the Jewish people of Paul's day were very zealous for God, but their zeal was not based on knowledge. Now, what is the the important knowledge that has to go along with your zeal? It says about the Jews, verse 3, since they did not know the righteousness that comes from God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. So what is the righteousness that comes from God? It's the righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ. His perfect life that he led on earth. And now once you accept him as your savior, his righteousness is credited to you. Okay. So as he says here in verse 3 again, since the Jews did not know the righteousness that comes from God, and I'll put in parentheses, through Jesus Christ, the Jews sought to establish their own righteousness. They did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the end of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. So through Jesus' death on the cross, we understand that we don't become righteous through our keeping of the law. We become righteous by having Jesus' righteousness credited to us. And that's the only kind of righteousness that will get us into heaven. We must never forget that. So Paul learned the lesson that zeal, which he previously had as a Pharisee, without knowledge, the knowledge of who Jesus Christ is and what his sacrifice meant, that zeal is worthless. Paul's zeal for God without the knowledge and belief in Jesus as his personal savior led him to try to establish his own righteousness. And once he had been called, now he looks back at the Jews and says, this is where they're going wrong. They have a great zeal for God, but they don't have the knowledge that should go along with it, the knowledge about Jesus. You know, years ago, and some of you will relate to this, when this denomination started, I don't know, it's probably getting close to 100 years ago now, we had a theology that was based to a great extent on law. We were kind of legalistic in our approach But when I was called through this denomination, I also had a great zeal for the aspects of the law that we were taught to keep. So I know that I had to make changes in my life because I learned about how the church was keeping a seventh-day Sabbath. And many of us were taught that years and years and years ago. So that brought on a lot of life-changing incidents in my life, I lost certain jobs because I was determined not to work on the seventh day Sabbath, which was Saturday. (laughs) And a lot of companies that I I wanted to work for required me to to work on those days. So I couldn't, I couldn't have a job there. You know, we were also taught dietary laws as is found in Leviticus and Deuteronomy 
about not eating certain types of food as God taught the Israelites. We thought we were supposed to maintain those same laws and that caused a lot of, you know, offense from time to time when somebody would invite me over to dinner and they'd serve a certain thing and I'd say, well, you know, I can't really eat that. According to the Bible, we were trying to keep laws that God never intended us to keep today. There were different holy days uh, as found in the Old Testament, uh, days of unleavened bread, feast of tabernacles, things like that, and a whole host of laws that we were taught that this is how we should live. This would be pleasing to God. And you had to have a lot of zeal for God to live that way. Because in some respects, it was quite different from the way the people around us were, were living. You know, for the days of unleavened bread, going seven days without eating anything with leavening in. That meant no bread or any other item that had leavening in it. And some of you will relate to that. You'll remember those days. So I had a great zeal for that way of life and was willing to do whatever it took to lead that way because I thought that's what God wanted me to do. But at that time, I didn't really have the relationship with my Savior like I do now. So in a sense, I had zeal for God, but it was without knowledge. The knowledge of who Jesus Christ was and who I am through him. Coming under his sacrifice on the cross, that has made me a literal son of God. And my wife a daughter of, of God. So, you know, I can kind of relate with what Paul learned here. To have zeal for God without knowledge. And he said that that is worthless. It doesn't do you any good. But I'm glad that those days are behind me. And, and it was... I think uh, 1995 that I came to a true understanding of who Jesus is and what grace is all about. And I learned that no one is saved by the keeping of the law. We're saved by grace from God, which is a gift from God. I was trying to establish my own righteousness. And it wasn't until I stopped doing those things that I realized it's all about Jesus. You know, my keeping of certain days and my eating of certain foods and avoiding other foods didn't have anything to do with it. You know, by my doing that, I was taking the spotlight off Jesus and putting it on myself. So Paul learned that lesson. He looked back on his life and he said, listen, I was very zealous for God, but I didn't have the right knowledge. Now he's got the right knowledge. Notice what he says in verse 9 of Romans 10. That if you confess, this is the proper knowledge, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It doesn't have anything to do with days that you keep or foods that you avoid, anything like that. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. And is with, it is with your mouth that you confess and you are saved. As the scripture says, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. 
So that's the knowledge that you need to have to go along with your zeal. And if you have zeal without that knowledge of who Jesus is, then you are actually failing before God. So the Jews, along with Saul at the time, had a zeal for God that was not based on the knowledge of Jesus. They knew of Jesus, but they did not grasp the true meaning of his death. So we are saved by grace and his sacrifice for us. I want to turn now to 2 Corinthians 11. So I can relate with what Paul went through. Now, of course, you know, when you, you look at the extent of his life and what it was as a Pharisee, you know, he did, I'm sure, so much more because sacrifices were still established at the time and Paul, Saul participated in all of that. So God had to redirect his zeal and Saul submitted to that and was changed and became a great leader of the church. Second Corinthians chapter 11, he didn't lose his zeal because as an apostle, that zeal was needed on his part because of all that he faced. And he faced so many tragedies in his life, uh, pain, discomfort, persecution. You know, he was caught in the middle because once he was converted, the Jews no longer wanted to have anything to do with him because they looked at him as a heretic now. And the Christians, on the other hand, didn't want to have anything to do with him because they feared him. They heard all the stories about how he persecuted the church, imprisoned church members, killed church members. So he was in no man's land at the time. But as time went by, and you read through all of his writings in the Bible, all the letters to the churches, so many times in the book of Acts, it records his sermons and things that he said. He had to continually rehearse his whole life story so that people would understand. But here he lists some of the things for which he needed continued zeal in his life as a Christian and as an apostle. Verse 23, he goes on to say here, uh, In the middle of the verse, he says, I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, this is as an apostle, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Verse 24, five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one, three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. This was all part of his life as an apostle and what he had to go through. Now, the normal person would have said, after just a little bit of this, I'm out. <laughs> Who needs this? Why do I have to go through all of this suffering? I'm just here trying to serve God. It seems like everything's going wrong. But don't forget, Paul had zeal. And God knew that when he called him. And he would need that continued zeal for God, that energy, that dedication. God knew what he was going to have to go through as, as an apostle. He goes on to say in verse 26, I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, 
in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false brothers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. So it doesn't come easy to be a leader in the church because you face persecution, you face hardships, you face difficulties. But Paul's zeal for God, when it was equipped with the knowledge of Jesus and faith in Jesus, Paul's zeal was demonstrated throughout the rest of his life, and he never lost it to the end of his life. And he was eventually martyred himself in Rome for being a leader in the church. So zeal is something that we all as Christians should have, that energy for God. You know, we think back to the time that we were first called and we were first converted and we first started reading the Bible with some sense of understanding. It began to make sense to us. We can't lose sight of those days. You know, Paul never did because zeal is needed as a, as a Christian. And you know what, even in the time that we, I'm talking to this group here, in the time that we have been in the church, for some of us it's been 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, things have changed in this world, haven't they? Amen. We see fewer and fewer people becoming Christians, at least in our country. I know in third world countries, there's always a great source of, of new people being baptized, new people becoming Christians, but it seems in our country especially, you know, the numbers of Christians seems to be going down. And society is changing. People have their mind on everything else but God. You know, it used to be in any community that there would be, you know, churches on practically every corner and they would be filled every Sunday. It was just a natural thing to go to church and worship God and have God in your life. But times have changed. God seems so far away from the people of our country today. And zeal is needed. You know, we can't find ourselves swept away into the same mood of the, the people around us. We need to stand out. We're a light placed on a, a lampstand. You know, our example needs to, to shine to people around us. You know, we can get weary. Paul, I'm sure, at many times was, was tested and it started to become weary, but then he had to remember what this was all about, who called him, you know, who he was obeying, who he sought to please, it was God. And once again, he was energized once again, all the way to the end of his life. So we should have zeal. Where should our zeal be directed? To God, yes. But I wanna point out one particular thing here in Titus. One final scripture, Titus chapter 2, a letter that Paul wrote. And he gives us a hint as to how our zeal should be directed. And it has to do with good works. You know, good works on our part, we don't do them to be saved. We do good works because we are saved. 
Our good works are a response <laughs> to our salvation by grace through Jesus Christ. We don't perform our good works to be saved. We perform good works because we are sa saved. In fact, in James, it tells us that good works are a proof of our faith. It was James who said, faith without works is dead. How do you know you have faith? Because of the good works you're doing. You know, you have God's Holy Spirit dwelling in you, and that motivates us to love our neighbor as ourselves, as we've been talking about the past few weeks. Looking out, being aware of people around us and the needs that they might, may have, and to supply those needs, to take care of those needs, to serve people around us. That's a proof of our conversion, a proof of our Christianity, a proof of our salvation. But notice, as Paul says here in Titus 2, in verse 14. It's talking about Jesus Christ in verse 13, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what we're waiting for. This Jesus, verse 14, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are, very, uh, are his very own, eager or zealous to do what is good. So that's where our zeal, our energy, is to be directed, to do good works. So we should have zeal for God like Paul did. And here, we're not zealous toward the law as Paul was, zealous toward wiping out uh, infidels or heretics as he saw them to be. We have been called to be a people zealous for good works. So that's what our focus is. And good works don't save us, but they're a proof that we are saved. Because it's a natural thing, once you're saved, you wanna please God, and as a response to what God has done for us, he wants us to do good works. And you know, good works can lead people to, to uh, salvation. As we serve others in a humble way and uh, reach out to them with the love of Christ, it can turn their lives around. That good impression that God makes through us can make people think. You know, sometimes when they say, why would you do that for me? You know, because it's so odd in our country more and more for people to just live a selfish life, to just see the, to their own needs. When you look out to others and see their needs and try to fulfill what they need, a lot of times people are suspicious. Why are you doing this for me? What would motivate you to do that for me? And we say, you know what? We're Christians, and that's what we've been called to do. That's what pleases God, and we want to please God. So it's not us doing it. It's God doing it through us. And that can make people think. And I'm sure over the time it has led people to, to God just responding to uh, good works from Christians. So the first aspect of Paul's life that I wanted to talk about today was his zeal. And we have been called to be zealous people too. And we don't have to work up zeal. God actually puts it in us. It's a gift from God. And too many times we want to quench that and we want to, uh, you know, put it aside or forget about it and just be involved in other stuff. 
We have been called, as we just read, to be zealous people, zealous especially for good works, zealous to worship God, zealous to please God, zealous zealous to let the light of Jesus Christ shine in our lives. So let's do that. Let's be about God's business, using Paul as an example. And I don't think we're ever going to have to suffer as much as Paul did. But he didn't let it get him down. He didn't let it discourage him. I'm sure there were times where he felt bad, he was in pain, uh, whatever the case may be. But he knew that God was the one empowering him. And uh, he continued to the very end of his life. So next week we'll talk about another aspect of Paul. There are several that I'd like to talk about.